Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the marketing podcast for marketers, founders, and tech people who are just sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I'm your host, Louis Gagnier. Uh, my guest today is, is a, quite a character. I discovered him through uh, one of you uh, who recommended me um, to, to my guest today. And uh, he's been writing a weekly column on, on branding for Marketing Week for over a decade. And so you might know him from this. And I've read a few of his articles that are cynical, uh, funny, uh, smart, teach you a lot of stuff around marketing. So I, I couldn't wait to have uh, Mark Ritson on the show. Mark, uh, welcome aboard. Bonjour, bonjour, Louis. I should say uh, bonsoir. I'm down in Australia, so it's evening uh, down here. Yeah, thank you for, for making the time in the evening. I appreciate it. No problem. So you have a PhD in marketing from Lancaster University. You're an adjunct professor of marketing at Melbourne Business School. You've been a private marketing consultant on projects ranging from brand strategy, market research, segmentation, CRM, and all the buzzwords um, that you that you can think of. Uh, you work with PepsiCo, Subaru, Ellie Lilly, Donna Karen, Westpac Group. Uh, for 13 years, you served in-house uh, as an in-house professor for LVMH, which is the world's largest luxury group. Um, and as I mentioned, you've written uh, a weekly column on branding for Marketing Week. I mean, you've done plenty of other stuff, but like it will take us 30 minutes to talk about just your, your pedigree and your intro and your bio. So let's get started into the meat of the problem. You talk a lot, uh, especially during your weekly column in, in Marketing Week, about the biggest misconception or the biggest mistakes that marketers make and, and nowadays. Can you pinpoint or summarize the ones that you think are the biggest? Yeah, I think there's a few, Louis. I think um, the biggest one, I think, is a complete absence of strategy. Um, and that perhaps is the one that I think is most haunting. Then linked to that is an obsession with uh, new, completely irrelevant technology, which gets in the way of a focus and doing a proper job. Uh, and I'd link all of those issues, you know, the ignorance of strategy. Most marketers have never had a strategic day in their lives. And this obsession with virtual reality and augmented reality and all this and blockchain and all this other nonsense, um, basically because they don't have any training in marketing. So they aren't really sure what the heck marketing is. And so they sort of gravitate between whatever the latest hot theoretical or tactical issue might be just to just to confirm one thing mark we have never talked before right no no and I've, i'm ashamed to say louis i've never listened to your podcast which i'm 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 terribly embarrassed i am going to listen to it. i've just been <laughs> on a busy i've been in japan on a busy job so yeah no i, I i've never we've never spoken before and you, i don't know whether you're you're about to bite my head off or, or agree with me, but but that's that's my take on it. No, and and no, but this is it because listener might think that I get guests on and we agree on what to say before because we repeat the same stuff over and over again with different twists, of course. But this is what we are preaching in this podcast, and you summarize it quite well. The absence of oh, very good, yeah. yeah. Well, that's good. To, I mean, that puts us both in a minority. I, I mean, my, I run the numbers. I go around the world giving occasional conference talks if I'm working for someone in a different country and. By my reckoning, around about 80% of marketers in some countries, 90, literally have no idea what the hell they're doing. And so they're, hence the obsession with Bitcoin, AI, VR, all kinds of other hoo-ha, uh, which is absolutely no relevance whatsoever for marketing. Yeah, it's a stunning discipline for that. Stunning. So today we're going to go through a kind of a step-by-step -step or methodology to actually come up with a good like strategy to do real marketing strategy and to agree on one. And I know you have a methodology that is quite simple to follow. So we'll go on that. But before that, I, I read a few of your articles, as I mentioned, and there are a few 
mistakes or like misconceptions that I've, that I've noticed uh, that you talk about during your articles. One of them is that I love is Steve Jobs didn't do research. A lot of, a lot of people in marketing seem to think that because yeah. allegedly Steve Jobs didn't do any research, they don't do, uh, they don't need to do any. Yeah, it's, it's, well, it's a broader topic. So that's the latest in a long uh, line of excuses why marketers don't want to talk to customers. Um, and, and this is the most common one, as you say, in, in, in sort of current realms, which is Steve Jobs is the greatest marketer in the world or was the greatest marketer in the world. And he had an active disrespect for doing research and thought it was a waste of time. So there's two things here. So first of all, Steve Jobs is a wonderful uh, marketer. He was. But also he was incredibly good at lying and or as you a wonderful Frenchman often call it mythology, which is not to say it was a personal lie. It was just something that you know, Jobs was absolutely correct. Why would you tell the competition what you do? You will misdirect them at all turns. And one of the many areas where he was uh, very liberal with the truth was in this idea that he was doing research. And we know this is not true because although Jobs occasionally said we don't do research, he, he was misquoted. What he said was you can't do research to work out what the customer wants next, which I do agree with. He did an awful lot of research, however, on brand perceptions, on competitor perceptions, on buying process. And we know that because when Apple sued Samsung and then Samsung sued Apple uh, about 10 years ago over a series of patent uh, infringements, one of the things that Samsung eventually got through a court order was more market research than anyone had ever seen in any company in the history of the world, much of it commissioned by Steve Jobs on the topics of what consumers perceive, what they were thinking, and what they were doing. So yeah, it's uh, just a bullshit excuse, um, often cited by people who are afraid to talk to customers. They were saying that the court uh, sequestrated around 800 metric tons of market research yeah. from inside yeah. Apple HQ. I mean, no, yeah. no, not just wrong, Louis, but completely wrong. Yeah, absolutely yeah. right. And, and Jobs would spend a considerable amount of time poring over the data and shouting at his executives from what, from what he was seeing. So, yeah, it's an absolute myth. Um, and unfortunately, part of that long history of, of bad marketers who find incredibly persuasive arguments as to why they won't shut up and just go and listen to customers, which is unfortunately or fortunately about 70% of the job once you put down the VR headset. We should have we should have talked uh, before. Um, <laughs> another one before we go into this strategy um, is that uh, <laughs> reputation uh, take a lifetime to build, but only a few seconds to destroy. And you, you you're making the point that this is also completely bullshit. Yeah, and it's hard to find a company that's more than thirty or forty years old that hasn't had a serious reputational crisis or two and has managed to survive it very nicely. I mean. Uh, you, there's hundreds of examples. We just take Volkswagen. So what, what Volkswagen did, and this is a matter of public record, is uh, commit corporate fraud on a global level, uh, cheat on emission standards in America, Europe, and various other countries, produce poisonous gas, which by scientific evidence um, is probably killing between 200 and 800 people uh, in Europe alone each year, thanks to the increased emissions from their polluting engines, and then lied about it. Now, that sounds to me like pretty much uh, an extinctive uh, act. You know, you don't survive that. And yet Volkswagen sales were up the following year. So it's not the brands are not the precious, incredibly vulnerable things that most people believe. Uh, they're quite robust entities and reputations. 
very hard to destroy or rebuild for that matter. Perceptions are, are far more bouncy than I think people realize. There is an, a counterexample to that. I mean, there's plenty of counterexamples. It's true that some brands nearly died and then survived uh, and then managed to stay uh, for the long haul. I remember this story about Corona. Um, I don't remember if it's in the 70s or 80s or something, but uh, they were... Uh, a rumor spread that uh, employees were pissing in the in the Corona beer before putting them <laughs> in the bottles, and that was actually coming from Heineken. Um, they 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 found it back to like the Heineken or or yeah, I think Heineken was it, and the, their sales plummeted, like uh, Corona's sales plummeted uh, for a few years, but they survived and they managed to like to then fight this, and and they are now at I think they're selling more than they ever did. So. It, it shows that, yes, reputations are, are hard to build, but you can't just destroy them in one day and then... That's uh, right. You, you, you certainly get dense, and I think that's fair to acknowledge. I mean, you certainly can hit, particularly in fast-moving goods, uh, a significant impact on sales for a short or quite long period of time. But killing a company or a brand, it turns out, is very hard to do. At this point, Louis, I will have to introduce my apologies because this comes from home. I have an incredibly annoying daughter who will occasionally shout. She's only 18 months old, but she's a difficult one. So my... My apologies to the listeners, but if you hear screaming, I'm 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 also evening care, so I, I we may have an occasional uh, uh, interruption. So my my apologies in advance. No problem. So you mentioned that marketers, uh, around eighty to ninety percent of them, which is a rough estimation on your side, haven't done any you know strategy in their life, or they haven't even you know sat down to actually do what is mm. a real marketing you know strategy for their company or for clients, right? Yeah, I, unfortunately, I, I, I fear that statistic is entirely true. Right. So what is a strategy in the first place? So a strategy is the middle part of marketing um, in the sense that I, I see marketing very much. And, and by the, this isn't my personal philosophy of marketing. So we should maybe back up and say marketing itself is about, a, about 100 years old. Um, and, and if you study in, at any level marketing, you discover that, you know, that we've been saying the same thing for a whole century. Um, strategy is the middle part. So if you imagine that the starting point for marketing each year or when you take over a new job is diagnosis, is understanding the market, building a segmentation. Strategy then becomes the choices that you make about what you will and actually more importantly what you won't do having then understood and diagnosed the market. And in my world, I mean, and this is how I do it, and I wouldn't say this is always the, the, the only way to do it, but in my world with brands, I would say that comes down to answering three questions well. Um, and again, answering what you will and also what you won't do. It's about having clear targeting from the segmentation you've built. It's about very tight, distinctive positioning um, to the market in terms of what you, you will and won't stand for and what your aim is to, to represent to the consumer. And then finally, a, you know, a set of a very small set of strategic objectives relating to what you intend to achieve in the market, which, again, in my world is in the next 12 months. I don't believe planning on more than a 12-month cycle works at all in marketing, in finance and in corporate world it does. But in marketing, what will be your goals, uh, specific goals and objectives for the 12 months ahead? So for me, that's what strategy is. It's making choices about who we will and won't go after, what we will and won't stand for, and what we will achieve by a certain time period. So it's, it's to say no more than to say yes. It's to to really to say we won't do that and that and that more than to say we will do that and that and that. 
Yeah, well, the, the number of choices in front of you is always greater than what your resources enable you to do. So if you take the targeting decision, there's no rule as to how many segments might exist. But in a decent segmentation, and I've done hundreds of them, there's usually, uh, you know, let's say eight or nine big segments. Only a fool would target all of them. There's too many. So there's the choice about which you will and won't target. And with positioning, there's literally a million different words, adjectives, and associations we can choose to communicate and associate with our brand. But in reality, my experience says that if you go for more than four or five things, none of them will ever work. So yeah, the, the, the choices of what you don't go for are far greater than the ones that you actually do. Let's take the scenario that uh, you are work, working with a, with a company that have you know, a few marketers in-house and that, you know, they want to grow and they're maybe struggling to, to really find out what exactly to do in marketing. So their marketers are like ch uh, chasing the shiny new object, uh, mm. like blockchain and whatever. And you realize that what they do need, first of all, is actually a, a proper marketing strategy. So how do you go about it? Like, what is the exact first step you take in order to, to come up with a proper strategy? Well, the first step in any marketing strategy is a step backwards. And this is the point normally missed by most marketers who are in a hurry. Um, so the first thing you do is acknowledge what we call market orientation. So the great catch of marketing is that the minute you start getting paid to work for a company or product or service, it is impossible to see that product the way the customer sees it. And the first law of marketing, if you will, is to recognize that and to realize that you will never see that product the way the customer sees it ever again. And that is a much more deceptive step than it sounds. So normally I beat that into my clients and customers first and show them how little they know about what customers really think. And literally what they think is up is down and black is white and they really don't get it at all. And that's to set that, create almost a vacuum of market orientation which says you are not the customer. And when you build that, that vacuum then demands that you do research. And, and the reason you have to have market orientation before you start doing market research is I've met plenty of brand managers who have a giant folder or file filled with a big survey on their desk, but they don't either look at it or if they look at it, they don't believe it. And if they believe it, they don't use it because they don't have market orientation. So the first thing we do before we turn the lights on with research is make everyone appreciate that we're sitting in the dark. And that's a very, very important step. Without it, in my experience, research is done for the sake of it, not because the client is petrified that actually everything they think is wrong, which for the most part, it usually is. So how do you do market orientation? Because you, you say you bring those kind of results in front of them to, to tease them or to explain that they are far away from the truth. But how do you come by this data in the first place? Well, it's not even data, right? It's almost the, uh, it's almost the confrontation of the other. So it, it really depends client to client. And there's a, a many different things I've done over the years. The, the most common routes to getting a client to see this is just to do simple poor man's ethnography and take them out into the field and, and, and get them to hang out with customers while their products are being chosen and, and consumed. Uh, even focus groups, although they're more expensive, can be a brilliant way within a matter of minutes of not necessarily generating insight to begin with, but just showing them that the 10 things they think are most important are relatively meaningless. So often it's just a confrontation of very simple qualitative data that will begin that process. It can even be done with sometimes with secondary data 
Or if a client is is good, you can just show them other examples of other clients and how what they thought was right was wrong, and and they begin to realize, well, we don't know any of this either. I must say as well, though, I mean, one of the helpful things about being relatively old now is I normally work with clients who know who I am and often are hiring me for the reason for this very reason. So often I have a senior CMO or marketing director who's the first thing they say to me is literally these guys, I literally had a meeting yesterday with a, a new marketing director for a large medical company in Asia. And he basically said to me, and I've worked with him before, he said, look, these guys, and he means his guys, these guys think they know all the answers. You need to show them, first of all, that they have no clue. That's the first thing I want you to do. So, so it really helps to have a senior person that already is a proper marketer. And they're basically saying, I can't tell them, you tell them. Oh, okay. Interesting. So this is something that I've, from my small experience that works really, really well is as soon as you even have one customer that you've talked to, let's say face to face and you've experienced what yeah. they are experiencing, you only did this one story sometimes to, to really, you know, to show the other person or the client that they are completely wrong. Uh, one story is usually more powerful than a, than a spreadsheet to, to show, to, to prove your point. So, okay. No, Absolutely right. I mean, really, that's basic falsificationism, right? You, you don't have to disprove. I did a, a talk many years ago at Siebes, the big Chinese business school. And I, I, was, I did a lot of qualitative research when I was an academic. And uh, I had this study of six households, uh, and I filmed them watching advertising for about three months and what they did when the ads came on. And when I presented this paper, this incredibly arrogant Chinese marketing professor sort of jumped in about a minute into my presentation and said, you know, you've got six households. How can that even be representative? That's the problem with work like yours. It's, it's so limited, you can't trust it. And so I waited until he was finished, and then I took him apart limb by limb using popper and falsificationism, which basically all quantitative research is founded on no, no theory is ever proven. It's tentatively accepted until we disprove it. And I said to him, look, if you shut up and listen to the rest of my paper, you'll find that all six households disprove three main theories of advertising. So the question isn't why I've only got six, it's why I've got five more than I need to disprove half the theories that you've been teaching your students. And that went down really well. <laughs> I can imagine, yeah. <laughs> right, so step one, you kind, of, you kind of make your point, you create this vacuum. Step two, yeah. market research. So how do you go about it? And let's, let's remember one thing, our listeners are not necessarily working for big companies, they might have their yeah. own business or they might even not have a, a business to start with. So let's try to be, uh, to give them some, some things that they can also take away um, in their own life. Yeah, look, so, so for good market research, even on a very limited budget, and I, I, know, I think there's a correlation between limited budgets and better research and better insights, actually, uh, but there does need to be a little bit of money or time, is always a combination of qual into quant. Again, one of the major errors that many companies make is they jump straight to quant and ask all the wrong questions. Uh, I trained McKinsey consultants for five years, and this was a constant issue. You know, they, they're good, very good quantitative market researchers, but, you, you know, they do a conjoint study, and they're very proud show you the results in the training program. And I'd say, that's great. Where did the variables come from? And they'd sort of go, well, we just kind of worked out what they were. And I said, well, then you've conjoints pointless. So qual produces the, the qualities and you get qualitative from, you know, if you're in a small business, even if you're in a big business, it's better to do your own qual. I like ethnography and just getting out into the market. Certainly focus groups are, you know, less sensitive, but more efficient. Any qualitative method, basically, where you shut up and learn uh, is the first stage in the process. And then at some point, segueing what you've learned, the qualities, into a decent quantitative instrument 
and doing a survey in business to business. If you have less than 250 customers, I think you can get away with keeping it at the qual level because getting representation isn't really going to be difficult to do even with one-on-ones. But where we have a big consumer business or a medium-sized consumer business, a decent online survey and a representative sample, which is surprisingly easy to achieve at the levels of confidence that we need, um, then produces, I think, a decent set of insights that really form half of the diagnosis. So, you know, I've done my qual and my quant. I, I see that really as, you know, the, the nice combination. And, and again, it doesn't have to be fancy. I, I trained a lot of marketers around the world, and I'd say the best options usually are a bit of ethnography in the market, watching the customer, listening and talking, into a representative survey, nothing fancy, done yourself on Survey Monkey, analyze properly, um, and then a bit of qual at the end maybe to interrogate some of the apparent segments that come out. So, yeah, look, for me, market orientation stage one leading to a good bit of you know, for me, research market research is a dirty business. It doesn't have to be perfect. And most marketers I meet will tell me, oh, I'm a little bit worried about doing research in case I influence the results or in case I don't calculate it right. And I say to them, you have no research. I don't care what you are worried about. You should worry about not being able to do anything because you have no research. You know what I mean? Again, yeah. excuses for why we don't do it. Get your ass in the field. Shut up, listen and talk to customers. Ideally, do a little bit of online quant. And you know what? You'll learn a bunch of stuff, and that will make you able to do your job. And 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 so for me, yeah, market research is you know the first major part of diagnosis. And the bit that follows, and this is a key point, is segmentation. And so the last part of the diagnosis stage is segmentation because segmentation has nothing to do with you. So and this is a point I need to interrupt you sorry. there. I need to Please. interrupt you there because you, you mentioned a lot of interesting stuff in, the, in step two, and I think we need to dig slightly deeper in that. So from my small sure. experience, as you said, a lot of marketers are afraid of doing this, right? They are afraid and they are finding excuses yeah. not to do it because they are afraid of the results. They are afraid to talk to people. They're afraid that, yeah. you know, they will be exposed and all of that. So uh, what type of if you have to say like two or three questions that you usually like to ask, whether it's on online surveys or like face to face with people, what could they be? Well, for me, I mean, th these days, it doesn't matter how big the company is, the world of quantitative research has been completely revolutionized by panels. So um, you can now buy panel. I mean, most big clients I work for, even national brands, I can go in there, and this is no exaggeration, and I can say I need about $12,000, about 8,000 euros, 6,000 pounds, and I can get a representative sample of customers to answer 30 questions. So uh, and we'll do the analysis ourselves. So whatever they've been spending, and I had one client who was spending $450,000, we can quickly get rid of all that crap, and we can build a very simple questionnaire that works. So what, what, what are the key questions to your point? Well, first, we don't need to ask any demographics anymore. That's pointless because every good piece of panel research has extensive demographic data for, for these people. So the days of asking demographic questions are over. And that then really leaves you with only two or three requirements. The first set of questions should be a, a standard hierarchical funnel. So you should ask four or five questions that build whatever you think is an appropriate funnel for your category. The, the generic one, which you shouldn't use, but along the lines of an awareness question, if they're aware, repeat the brands they're aware of into consideration. If they consider them, repeat the consideration into preference. Repeat the preference question then into loyalty if they bought it before using Net Promoter. So you're building a very simple uh, buying funnel with four or five hierarchical questions. Uh, 
Next, you're going to ask a bunch of attributes about your brand and one competitor brand. Those attributes will have come from the qualitative research, and you'll probably be pulling um, uh, negative as well as positive attributes. You want them both in there. And you want to ask about a competitor, not because you're measuring the competitor brand, but you want to get a sense of how much you own those attributes versus your main competitors. And the competitor comes from the consideration set you've already asked in the funnel questions. So attributes, give me an example of an attribute. Okay, so I'd, I'd phrase it as a Likert scale, so agreement scale. So let's say in my research, I've learned that I'm a cool brand, I'm seeing this in an intellectual brand, and I'm seeing there's a brand that is reliable. I'm going to turn all of those into simple statements and ask the consumer, how much do you agree on a scale of one to five? One disagree strongly, two disagree, three neither, four agree, five agree strongly, that my brand is a intellectual brand, that my brand is a reliable brand. Now, you've also got some negatives. So let's say we also found out that we're seen as being too expensive. You ask these too expensive. So you, what you're doing is you're quantitatively measuring whatever attributes you've found in your qualitative. So now we get representation. So now we get magnitudes and we also get causality. So now what you're going to do is you're going to take your funnel research and you're going to take your at attribute research and you're going to correlate the attributes against the funnel. So what you're not going to do, unless you're stupid, is ask the consumer how important is reliability in making your purchase? Because the consumer doesn't know and it's also a question which costs you money. So instead, you're not going to ask any question. You're just going to take your sample and you're going to look at the correlation coefficient between how much the more people think I'm reliable, does, does the likelihood of consideration or preference or recommendation increase or decrease? And so that gives you the importance score. And so what you've got from that data is everything you need for the latest steps in research. You've got what the customer thinks, what they think of your competitor and how important those things are in driving the various steps in the purchase funnel. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's funny. Again, I had a discussion last week with a client. I, I don't think you ever need a questionnaire with more than 30 questions or you're doing something wrong. But we got to 50, and it was pretty punishing because I couldn't kill any of the questions. But my point is normally a good questionnaire is elegant and has very few questions because we know what we're going to use those questions to do next. Right. So that's a pretty comprehensive answer. And you've said a lot of things that I've never heard before. Uh, causality, I think a lot of listeners have never heard that before. So thank you uh, for digging into that. So step three you mentioned is segmentation. Yeah. So the segmentation thing is a very important uh, philosophical mistake that many most companies make. Segmentation is not the same as targeting. Targeting cannot happen yet. STP, segment target position, happen in sequence. Segmentation has nothing to do with the company or brand. We call it market segmentation because it's about the market. And if your competitor was as smart as you and, and by chance had the same data as you, they could, in theory, produce exactly the same segmentation uh, because they're looking at the same market. And so that's a key point here. Segmentation is part of diagnosis. It's about mapping the mountain, not climbing the mountain, just mapping the mountain. The climbing will come later. And most companies go wrong because they've already got a target segment before they finish their segmentation. So they've already decided how they're going to climb the mountain, and they haven't fully understood the mountain yet. And this is important because segmentation teaches us what to do next and really reaches out its hand and will show you where to go. Uh, and so that, 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 that segmentation point is building a decent, uh, complex, but ultimately revealing um, a picture of the whole market. So everyone in the market should be in there. 
uh, that could be possibly in the market and a decent segmentation. Obviously, you're going to be part, you're going to be in one segment or, an, or or a different segment, but also a good segmentation should end with a, a couple of things. It should have a good name to describe the behavior inside the segment. It should have the proportion uh, or the size of the market, you know, in millions or hundreds of thousands. So how many people are there? It should have a dollar value for the total value if all of those people consumed your product. And finally, it should have your current market share of that segment. And if you can show the market segments in that way, it intuitively then leads to very clear and uh, elemental targeting next. Okay. And I, how do you combine those, this data around market share and, and, and all of that? Well, you've got to run some estimates. But if you've done your, your quantitative research on a representative sample, you can take the yeah, and again just to pause there. Representative samples are something again most people don't understand. I have a PhD in marketing, so let me quickly tell you how to calculate a representative sample. Go to Google and type in survey sample calculator. Enter the popula enter the population of the. I mean, they teach classes on this like for nine weeks in business school because they have nothing else to teach the students, right? Go to Google survey sample calculator. Well, if, you, if you're going after, I don't know, French engineers and you know there's 1 million French engineers, that's the population, and you put that in, your confidence level should be uh, 95%. All that means is if I do this 95 times out of 100, I get the same result. And your con confidence interval should be 5%. That means roughly the same as plus or minus 5. You can change those, but that's kind of the standard that we would expect. And so when you put that data in, if you're going after a million French engineers, you're probably going to discover you need about, I'm guessing here, maybe a, a sample of 300. And you can then maximum, if you take your 300 and multiply it out to make it into a million, those sizes that you captured in your segmentation will be pretty much analogous to the total market. Right. And, and I, really, I really thought that you would start, you were like showing off with your PhD and then saying <laughs> this very smart answer. So well done. I was expecting something <laughs> different. Um, right. So with a sample of around 300 people, you have, uh, you can have, have, you can be almost you know, certain that uh, you, can, you can draw the full market. You can make assumptions around the full market and, and really, yeah. really start to, to do some proper um, segmentation. Right. So that's step three. What is then step four? So step four, you've got to then get into strategy. So step four begins the strategic middle part of marketing. So here we're making the first choice, which is targeting. Where do I want to go and where do I not want to go? There's a tremendous movement in marketing, thanks to Byron Sharp and Ehrenberg Bass to target everyone. Uh, there's a case for that in low involvement categories sometimes, but by and large, it's overstated. You don't have unlimited resources most of the time. And so I prefer to target one segment only if it's big enough and go after it pretty much with all my resources. But, you know, it's a matter of strategy at this point. How, you know, how good is your sales force? How many dollars do you have? Which segments look attractive? But, you know, my point is one target segment makes life a lot easier. Every time you add a second one, by definition, they're different markets now. You're going to have to do things differently. So targeting is really all about making these choices. And here we begin to see who is and who isn't any good at this. You know, this targeting choice separates the girls from the women and the boys from the men. A bad marketer now ends up with, you know, seven priorities and they're all, you know, high priorities or priority one, priority two. That's all BS. What you really want is I'm going after that segment and that segment. Clear, demarcated decisions with a clear logic. And how do you make this choice? Well, it comes, you'd be surprised if your segmentation is, is good, 
it tends to be pretty obvious which ones you're going to go after. The only big question is how many. So my rule of thumb is if I find a big enough segment, I mean, so what you're trading off here is this segment based on what they do, their size, your current share, the competitors that own it at the moment, do, does it look like a place where I can make money? Does it fit the product that I uh, I am currently you know marketing? Does it look rich? Does it look big? Does it look easy? Does it have influence on the other segments through spillover? And so there's a myriad of choices. A good segmentation with all that data inside the cells, to be honest with you, it's almost like the segment will tell you, hey, over here, you want to you come here. It, it really is that that explicit. The only trick is working out how many segments you really want to chase. And again, my experience is if you can go after one big one for a year, maybe two or three years, that's where you should start. So you'll find with a good segmentation, uh, it's pretty straightforward. If you have an idiot sales manager in the room, he or she wants to go after everyone. Um, but again, you spread yourself so thin like peanut butter that you make no money. And I think this is the rule number one. Even if you have a small business or looking to start one, and if you or you're working for for a small company, usually a good a good, a good way to understand which are the people you need to go after first are like your most profitable customers or people who look like them, right? It's like those people who spend the most with yeah. you, recommend you the most, uh, drain your customer service department the less, and how can we get more of them? You got it. You got it. I mean, one of the great joys of Facebook among its many perils is lookalike targeting is fundamentally that. I mean, the, you know, you, you've got to be happy with a customer, not only because they've paid you some money, but because they found you and they've come through you versus all these competitors and they have a reason for picking you and hopefully they're happy. And as you say, it, it, this is much more important than, than the sale. There are many more of them out there. And so absolutely right. You really want to use the existing customers to help you target future customers. And that's a dirty, simple, brilliant secret that's missed by most marketing people. Yeah, I agree. Right, so you have that, you have your segmentation, you know which one you wanna go after. And as you said, it's a, it's a matter of choice. It's about saying no 90% of the time, 95% of the time, and picking those 5%, the, the, the people that you wanna go after. What's the, what's the step after that? So now we can do positioning properly. Um, you can't position to everyone. You know, again, if you look at the Ehrenberg Bass stuff, it's it's all about targeting everyone. And, he, and also they don't believe in differentiation, but that's because they've targeted everyone and you can't be all things to all people. When you've targeted a segment and you've really carved them out, they want certain things. And it's much easier then to link, hopefully, your brand or product to those things um, and so a, a clear segment gives you a clear line of sight into what this segment wants and how they buy. Another great point that is often missed is we, I think most marketers grasp that in a segment, by definition, their behaviors and needs are different. So is the competitive set. So when you do proper segmentation, you discover that there aren't eight different competitors in the market. There's one or two, usually one, that owns that particular segment. And that, by definition, is who we're positioning against. So positioning becomes much easier now because we've got a much tighter cluster of people who want the same stuff and a very clear competitor who's currently the, the, you know, the person we have to knock down. And so now you're crafting a positioning statement. And I don't care you know, what you call this, brand purpose, brand values. My rule is... Um, Brand DNA, I don't care. As long as it's tight, less than five attributes, uh, ideally way less than five. And I like word. I just like words or phrases. I don't think it has to be wordsmithed into a slogan at this point. This is the you know the core DNA, and the positioning must pass only three tests. It must be what the target customer wants. It must be what we can deliver better than or different from the competitors in that segment, and we will make a lot of money. And in my experience as a consultant, we always have.
And this is the key, I think. This is why your advice is so gold, is that the more targeted you are, the smarter you are the, in your positioning and the way you talk to people, the easier it gets to really pick uh, what you're going to say. Because as you said, it just becomes obvious at a certain point that those people share the same attributes and they want the same yeah. thing. And they all use either you or a direct competitor. And it just gets easier from there. You know where they hang out. You know who influenced them. You know you which it. channels you should use. It just gets easier. Um, and I really wish that if, if marketers were doing this exercise, uh, I think I think they'll, they, they would see the value that it has. You got it. It's absolutely right, Louis. I mean, the analogy I use is, is it's like going downhill in a good way, right? Once you've got a decent target segment, the bike just takes off and you just keep, you know, you get your own velocity and it's it's almost like the plan starts to write itself. That's when you know you've got it right. God has been kind, giving you a nice, easy segment. You can't not make money from this point onwards. I mean, that sounds strange, but that's my experience in many, not all, but in many cases. So it's, it's, a, it's a shame that a lot of marketers are like really focusing on the shiny new object instead of doing this exercise because it doesn't sound like a, I mean, it sounds like a bit of work, obviously you have to spend the time, but it sounds mm. also like a very, very worthwhile exercise and something that makes you then as the marketer, uh, very, very valuable because you're the one who understands the market and people better than anyone else in your company or in, in your agency. Yeah, I don't want to encourage all your listeners to start actually doing marketing. We're not curing cancer here. It's much better for me if most of them continue to do VR and AI and Bitcoin so I can keep making tons of money for my clients. So let's not let's not get carried away here. Yeah, yeah, that's right. No, let's keep it for ourselves a little bit more. Right. Yeah, so yeah. and then and then the last step uh, is usually the objective, right? Like what what are you trying to achieve uh, at the end of the day so that you know Yeah. Go. You got it. So the last last part of strategy is exactly that. So I've got a target segment. I've got a clear position to the segment. And then I, I can go back to my funnel, have a look at, you know, where are the blockages. And what I'm trying to do is work out one, two clear, smart objectives, which relate back to that funnel. So that's what objectives look like. And they have to be smart. So they, you know, again, A.G. Laffley, the old boss of Procter & Gamble, was brilliant on this. Uh, he wrote a book called uh, Game Changer. And then another one called How how strategy works. And and in both books, he makes the same arguments, which is, you know, most companies have like, you know, 12 objectives and, and they're not really objectives because they have no real, like, you know, date or means of delivery. And there's 12 of them. And he calls them, he says, they're not objectives, they're dreams that won't come true. And he's so right. So I push my clients. I like, you know, one, two, and a real squeeze, three objectives, because again, each one demands resources and time and effort. So, you know, the analogy I use is, you know, moving boulders, big heavy boulders from one field to another. There'll be other years and there'll be other objectives. But if we try and move too many boulders in one year, we'll move none. So what's the main one that you want to focus on this year? Let's move that. And then we'll go back and move others in future years. And so, you know, a good objective is you know, I'm working with a beauty brand at the moment. Uh, increase preference from hand cream uh, among the you know studious Asian segment from twelve percent to nineteen percent by December twenty eighteen, and that's the that's the objective that we've said will drive the most money for this particular brand team. Um, they've got all their marketing bonuses hinged on it. We will remeasure it in December, and we will see if they've achieved it or not. So it's it's you know it's it's a very clear and explicit process. All right, let's move on from this exercise. Thank you so much for spending the time to go through it step by step. And hopefully not, not that many marketers will listen to this episode so that they, <laughs> you won't be out of a job. Uh, but I, I, I don't think it's going to happen, Mark. I think you have plenty of market share. <laughs> I think share. we're safe. We're safe, Louis. Yeah, I think we're safe. Um, so you work with a lot of brands, as you mentioned. One of them is like PepsiCo, right? And 
uh, one of their one of their you know product a lot of products are like very sugary and clearly bad for your health um was yeah. was there so why did you choose to work with them because you sound like a very no no bullshit guy uh, and yet they sell some products that are you know, not necessarily the best for people. Have you refused to work with any businesses where you, you don't, you didn't believe in in their product? Not so far. I mean, I've even worked once for Big Tobacco. I, oh. I'll be very, I'll be very clear how I did it. But I did. Um, there was a big major piece of work to to to, and I was very clear with them. I said, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna help you sell more tobacco. But the job was specifically to identify essentially how many brands to kill and how many people to lay off as a result of what might turn into plain packaging if if cigarettes were commodified. And in that sense, because I wasn't helping them sell any more cigarettes but working out how they're going to lay people off, I felt comfortable doing that. If, if Certainly if the information had been used to, to sell cigarettes, I think that would have been my my red line, as it were. But to work out, you know, here's the implications and here's what you should shut down. I, I thought about it a lot and I thought, well, that's not, you know, it's, it was a very small job, but I thought well, I don't have a problem with that and I'll do the work. I think Australia was one of the first countries who have plain packaging, no? Yeah, it was. It was. And it's it's begun to roll. It's been very, very successful too. Brilliantly done, uh, even to the point of identifying the least attractive font and the least attractive pantom for the packaging. I think it's a it's a major contributor, and, and again, I think that's very well done indeed. It, 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 my, I can't, obviously can't tell you what my research revealed about how many brands and people they should lay off, but it was significant. So it was really anti-marketing exercise. What is the packaging that is going to be fine? That is the the least enticing, the the least beautiful. Uh, that will prevent as many people as possible to buy them. Yeah, and that uh, that was something that was done by a different team working for the I think one of the health groups here in Oz in Australia. And I was telling the cigarette companies, well, first of all, it's brilliant. I was, certainly wasn't giving them any way around it. And I said, this is the impact it's going to have. So this is what you should do and how you should close things down. That was my uh, that was my contribution. So even I mean, I don't normally do that kind of work, but my point is, uh, my point is I've worked for luxury brands and as you say, I've worked for, for companies selling, you know, soft drinks. I, I, I feel comfortable within the premise that, you know, you, you give customers what they want and then they make their decisions. I think if they were making outlandish claims or claims that were untrue, there would be a different story. I don't think capitalism is is bad. I don't think it's the best thing in the world for people or society, but it's a lot better than most of the other stuff we've got um, and may have some positive impacts. So yeah, ethically, I think as long as I'm not, I don't find myself doing something which involves causing direct hurt to people or animals, I think I would be comfortable with most jobs. I have been so far. Right. I, uh, we, I'm not sure we have a lot of time to debate this, but I would love mm. to debate that. When you said that people, you know, you give people what they want, this is where I would say, for like soft drinks, as an example, I'm not trying to pick on Pepsi. Uh, I'm just taking that as an example. I think it's pretty clear that when you have a population that is uh, not necessarily as educated as other segments per se, and that they are being fed ads that are not necessarily not lies, but not really the truth either. Like they are like really, you know, it's putting lipstick on a pig. It's like making it sound cool and all of that. It's very easy to be manipulated towards thinking that this is what you want, right? In the first place. So um, I would argue that sometimes people don't really know what they want and they've been manipulated to think that this is what they want, right? But, but there's an old argument here, Louis. So this is obviously affecting you quite badly and making you buy things that are bad for you, right? 
Yeah, I mean, not necessarily me, but I'm thinking for people who uh, are. Uh, 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 no, no, no. You see, there's your problem right there. You can't be arguing that there are some less intelligent, less switched on people who suffer from marketing, but you yourself are immune to it. No, if you so ask let's, the average English let's, 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 Frenchman let's, or American, no, if you yeah, ask them, yeah, do you think yeah. advertising is bad because it influences people and makes them do bad things? They say, yes, 100% yes. And you say, does that do that to you then? And they go, no, no, not, not to me. Oh, it does. So no, a- it does. Let's, let, let, me, let me finish. Yes, it does. And I probably didn't answer the question well, but it does. And I do sometimes do it on purpose, like looking at ads and rethinking, you know, whether I've been influenced to buy. And yeah, I've been influenced to buy many, many things because of ads throughout the years, right? But I I guess yeah. the point is that um, those ads, like people don't realize that they are influenced by ads that much and by marketing and advertising that much, right? I don't know. I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, the cons- we, we've given marketing too much. We've given marketing too much credit for being too um, for being too strong. When in reality, it's quite weak. And at the end of the day, I think consumers are smarter than we think. But as you say, it's a it's a it's a it's a very old, very long debate to which there is. No correct answer. Yeah. And I didn't mean to imply that some like dumb people are more inclined to buy, you know, Pepsi stuff. I was just trying to make a, a, a simple example. Uh, but yes, everybody, uh, I think, are influenced somehow by, by, by brands and ads or else uh, they wouldn't do it, right? Yeah. No, no, there's, there's definitely an impact. But, you know, not as strong as I think, you know, many would. I always say, you know, the way they describe marketers in, in, in much of the press, I'm, I'm like, have you ever met any of these guys? They can't find their ass with either hand. They're not, you know, ex, you know, they're not, you know, genius manipulators of opinion. They literally have no clue what they're doing. You know, there's a real disjuncture between the marketer we've been describing for the first 40 minutes and the one that somehow is manipulating people to do what they want. Most of them have, have no clue what they're doing with them money right i mean that's the that's the reality so they couldn't find their ass with both hands this is what you said this is a scientific term yeah it's a scientific term. <laughs> never heard that before it's pretty good um what is the biggest marketing fuck up in your career oh there's a few to go for uh what would i say i think probably ericsson um i work with this really great team uh in sweden on uh, on some branding for ericsson and this is a long time ago and i really had no clue what i was doing and it's my fault not their fault because i was the consultant at the time and we just did all this branding stuff that i've since learned is basically pointless and i led them down the garden path so we had like you know seven slides to describe the brand essence and we we didn't engage anyone in the process we just sort of launched it on a stage and we had innovation and integrity and all that crap in the positioning so i think that's the worst i've ever done and and so the reason why it didn't work is because you came up with too many attributes Oh, there's about 300 reasons why it didn't work. And all of them were reasons I should have known because I was meant to be a consultant. But yeah, too many attributes, the same attribute. Everyone uses integrity, innovation, trusted partner, if you don't know what you're doing. They're signals that you're an idiot. <laughs> so, so, you know, I, I was an idiot, I'm happy to admit. And then we didn't engage anyone around the work. We just surprised them on stage with a, you know, a rhomboid and a triangle and a circle with trusted partner in the middle. I mean, it was, yeah, it was pretty bad. Pretty yeah, bad. That sounds awful. Um, did you get fired or did you lose the clients because of it? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, in the end, I mean, it, it just didn't work. Right? I didn't get any traction. We felt pretty good about it at the time, but it, it didn't work. And I, and quite correctly, Ericsson didn't use me again. And I, I, I think that was a choice that, you know, 20 years later or 15 years later, I would have encouraged them to make. <laughs> Well, I appreciate your, your candor and sharing that uh, with us. Um, what do you think marketers should learn today that will help them in the next 10 years, 20 years, or even 50 years? 
Uh, the same stuff, the same stuff. And most marketers have no training. They should go and learn marketing. It's very simple. We're 100 years old. They need to learn how to do research, segmentation, targeting, positioning, pricing, integrated marketing, distribution, omnichannel distribution, product development, uh, a little bit of brand tracking, a little bit of brand management, and they'd be in very good shape. But most of them won't do that because they think marketing is all old marketing is dead and all new marketing is requires something new. So, um, yeah, it's... Uh, I'd say the next 10 years, if you really wanted to be successful, you just need to be trained well, um, not to be tactical, but to be strategic, and you'll be fine. Where does one get trained in marketing? Well, it's tricky. I can't defend many of the ways. I mean, the American business schools were the place where I went to learn my, my art, um, and I, I certainly don't regret it, but th that was back in the, in the early 1990s. I, I despair on the quality of marketing professors at business schools in general. There are, of course, some notable exceptions, but marketing is increasingly taught in business school by people that have never done marketing. So how can they be any good at teaching it? Um, so for me, I guess I'd say at a good company, It used to be Unilever and P&G. They train you up well. They still do, but they're a declining force. I think, again, Google and Facebook will be the place I would go to learn my art now because on top of all the tech stuff, they really are pretty good classical marketers, it turns out. So that's probably the place I'd go. I should plug the fact that I run a mini MBA in marketing Uh, based on the course that I – so I taught the marketing core course at London Business School, at MIT in America, uh, a couple of other business schools. And, um, and I've turned that now that I don't teach it anymore uh, at business school. I've turned it into an online course that takes about 12 weeks and that we run about two or three times a year through marketing week. And we've done about two and a half thousand people through it, marketers so far, that want the MBA quality training, but can't do two years at a top MBA school. Uh, it costs about a thousand pounds, which is very cheap, I think, very well priced. And so far, our net promoter score from the two and 2,200 people have done it is about plus 75, which is pretty good and is indicative of how good a program it is. So I'd plug that program as being very good. But yeah, I think a good company that can train, if you're under 30, go to a top company that can teach you marketing. Right, an NPS score is net promoter score, right? And it's a, it's the question: How uh, likely are you to recommend uh, this yeah. product to a friend or, or a colleague? Sorry, Lou. I'm get, yes, I'm getting too technical. Yeah, we we asked two and a half or two thousand two hundred people that have done the course. How likely would you be on a scale of zero, not at all, to ten? Extremely likely. How likely would you be to recommend it to your colleagues? And so far. Um, I forget the exact number, but around about 70, more than 70% of people said either nine or 10. Um, and almost no one has said zero to six, which makes, you know, the detractor. So we're, we're, it's a wildly good score. It's not quite Apple, but it's not far off. What are the top three best resources you would recommend listeners? So that's mostly individual resources like books or podcasts or yeah. whatever. I, th I think you've still got to read the Harvard Business Review. It's not the uh, it's not the organ it once was, but it's still amazing. And some of the some of the PDFs from its history are very. I mean, we still use it in business school as the main source of reading. So I'd I'd have the Harvard Business School on my list. Um, I'm a big fan of Drayton Bird. Uh, spelt bird as in B-I-R-D. Drayton was one of, he's still alive. He must be in his 80s. He might be 90. Drayton Bird, if you Google him, is a, a, a good website, which I think has pretty much um, a lot of great thinking. And he was one of Ogilvy's, David Ogilvy's best hires. You know, he worked for David Ogilvy for many years. So I think he offers a link back to very good marketing theory. So I'd have, I'd have him on my list. And then last, oh, I would suggest... 
Uh, look, I, I write for Marketing Week, but I think we're pretty good. So Marketing Week is one of the few, I think, publications that has kept a focus on doing marketing rather than advertising. So Marketing Week, it's free. I mean, we're a free magazine with a lot of good analysis. It's UK-based, but my column appears there, and, and, and so does certain other people's. I think it's really good. So, yeah, Marketing Week, is, is it's worth a, a look each week, I think. So Mark, you've been an absolute pleasure and I, I really mean it today. You've taught me a few things and I know that listeners will learn a, a lot from you as well. And thanks also for your no bullshit uh, <laughs> way of talking about marketing, which I really appreciate because I, I try to do the same in my own way. Uh, where can listeners connect with you and learn more from you? Uh, look, the best way is just either LinkedIn or Twitter. I'm both. I'm easy to find. R I T S O N. I'm happy to link in with anyone on LinkedIn and on Twitter. I publish my articles. I write for the Australian here in Australia and Marketing Week in the UK. So I, I publish all my stuff there. So if you follow me on Twitter or LinkedIn, you'll get access to my stuff on a regular basis. I think your your daughter is is it your daughter you mentioned at the start? Yeah, she's been too good. I yeah. introduced her because I figured Roxanne would start shouting, but she's. She's probably out in the garden abusing the dogs, which is probably what, what I should go and do now. All right. Well, once again, Mark, thank you so much. Thanks, Louis. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email lists uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a, as a one-to-one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you my numbers and how many listens we get and I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests and perhaps I can also uh, have you on the show uh, someday so don't be afraid to subscribe I'm not going to spam you and you can always uns- unsubscribe for sure if you wish the second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback we know that this show is not perfect yet and we always Uh, can improve so you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com good or bad please feel free to send me an email and the last thing i like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode please share it to your friends your colleagues or whoever might like it and also please review it on itunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast because if you leave us a five-star review it means that more people will be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker So thank you so much once again and au revoir. And that's it for another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at EveryoneHatesMarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. 
Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, came through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content that's coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.